Welcome back to the Sensible Medicine Podcast. This is July 9th. It's a Sunday. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. John Mandrola. John, it's a pleasure to see you again. It's great to see you. Well, here we are, back in Sensible Medicine. We're without our, our colleague, Dr. Adam Sifu, because he's on rounds, and he said he's had he's had too much medicine. Literally, he's had a different type of too much medicine. You can't talk medicine anymore. Yeah, I just just... I just need to make one comment about that. Whenever academics say they, they can't do something because they're on service, it makes me think, you know, us private practice guys, we're on service every day. <laughs> so I just want to give them a little grief on that. It's funny that, uh, you know, when I was a fellow, I was basically on service for like the whole year. You know, you're like on service all the time. But then when you're faculty, you're on it in bursts. And it's true, though, that at the end of like two week stretch, I do find myself tired. And I'm like, if I really am honest, I'm not sure I worked that hard, but yeah, it's the mental energy, uh, you know, burns calories. Yeah, so. maybe it's the teaching and uh, all that business that I don't have to deal with. But Well, don't worry. Most of us here don't do that either. So <laughs> <laughs> most don't do it. Okay, we got a great lineup today. We're going to talk about what's the deal with journals. Are they impartial arbiters of the truth or do they have some agenda? We're going to talk about placebo-controlled randomized trials based on a little video I put up on YouTube. John watched and he made some points of things I had omitted that's got to be discussed. And then we're going to talk about cancer screening and a uh, viewpoint I post in Sensible Medicine about a real life example of a man who just wanted to work on his car until the lung cancer screening doctors got their tentacles on him. All right, John, let's kick it off with journals. You know, what's your beef with journals? What do you got? What do you got against journals, John? Well, here's the thing is, I mean, I want to have this view that scientists are really trying to answer a question and that you know we need to publish our work somewhere publish work somewhere and there needs to be judges neutral judges and i understand that there's always dualities of interest but so two examples this recently this couple last couple of weeks one was uh, uh the bempedoic acid trial clear outcomes trial. New England published it about a month or two ago, maybe maybe more than that. But, you know, bempedoic acid in statin intolerant patients did show a statistically significant real benefit, 13%, non-fatal outcomes, so a modest benefit. And then uh, either last week or the week before, JAMA published a subgroup analysis from the clear outcomes where, you know, a, a small group of patients were primary prevention, another bigger group were secondary prevention. And basically there were two slices of this trial and they published this subgroup analysis. And of course, subgroup analysis are a problem to begin with, but JAMA, one of the top journals, only published part of the subgroup that had the benefit. And so, it, you know, if you're going to publish a subgroup, why wouldn't you publish both groups? So if, if, if the overall effect of the trial is almost null or just modestly increased and you publish one sub one subgroup looks like it's really beneficial mortality reduction then doesn't the other subgroup have to be worse and oh, so but they don't they, they don't publish that they just publish one and it gets i i looked at the altmetric score it was covered by over 80 uh news organizations all with positive headlines and then uh, and then today on, on Stop and Think, my substack, I wrote about finally uh, this Monitor HF study. Monitor HF is a, a randomized controlled trial looking at this little paperclip device that you put in a pulmonary artery, basically a wireless uh, Swan-Gans catheter. We know how Swan-Gans catheters worked out. Yeah. And the idea is that 
this monitor transmits data to heart failure specialists and then they can manage the patient better than standard of care. But get this, they it was an unblinded trial. So half the group got this invasive procedure with this device and half the group got nothing. And then what did they measure? They didn't measure outcomes. They measured as their primary endpoint quality of life, how patients felt about how they felt. And of course it was a positive trial, but it was completely, I mean, you just can't do that, right? You cannot have an unblinded trial when you're measuring quality of life. And then um, uh, the, of course the authors mention it in their limitations, but in the conclusions they say, you know, this was beneficial and it should influence guidelines. And then the editorial, the editorial was basically written uh, one paragraph on the limitations, but you know, seven out of eight paragraphs being positive, saying this, you know, this is a great device. And, you know, as I wrote, I mean, whether a device is used in heart failure patients is not the end of the world, but if a journal is going to publish that kind of stuff with no, you know, edit, not even accompanying editorial, then what are we to think about the other studies that are probably legit? So I, that was a long-winded answer, but I'm really worried about the state of adjudication of science. So let me put it back to you. So it sounds like the two things that are concerning you, one, randomized controlled trial of a new lipid-lowering agent. It has primary prevention and secondary prevention patients in it. One-third primary, two-thirds secondary. Okay, the overall trial is null. I mean, for overall mortality, it's null. There's a reduction in the lipid. Right. Okay. Uh, but in JAMA, they accept the subgroup analysis by Nissen and colleagues, the primary prevention only, omitting two-thirds. In that subgroup, which by the way, it's not pre-planned. Is it a pre- well, it doesn't matter. I, it may have been pre-planned. It may have been pre-planned, but, but you know matter, what? Right? it doesn't matter because if you you're blowing your alpha anyway. Okay. So in one third of it, there's an OS benefit. And the other two-thirds, they don't tell you. But what you want to know is one, is there an OS decrement in secondary prevention? And what's the interaction coefficient? Is a statistical interaction present? And then you want to see a replication study. And actually, to my knowledge, John, it's very rare for a top journal to publish a subgroup analysis of a paper. Very rare because it's considered low credibility. So I think it's shocking. Well, you should tell us why it's low credibility. I guess, why is it low credibility? I mean, I think the answer is because there are many, many subgroups you can look at after the fact. And- you know, you could look at people who got it in Europe versus North America. You can look at people who are primary prevention or secondary prevention. You can look at people whose LDL at baseline was over 90 or over 120. You can look at people who are white or black or men or women. And who's to say which of these subgroups make biological sense? We can always tell ourselves a story, but the potential for multiple hypothesis testing is just rampant. And, you know, uh, I mean, that's why people sometimes call it salami slicing p-hacking, data dredging, um, you know, it's it's not good. I mean, what the whole, whole purpose of the randomized control trial is it's a controlled experiment with a clean look at a clean endpoint um, to isn't minimize also, this kind of bias, yeah. But isn't it also true that when, you, when you're doing a trial of however many patients, you're powering the trial to find, a, to find an answer for that group. But then when you take a subgroup, you're just taking, I think of it as a pie, right? You're just taking a small subgroup and you're and you're cutting it up and you have a smaller number of events. And so it's going to be more, way more susceptible to noise. Absolutely. And another way to think about it is, you know, you can get a Jackson Pollock painting where he splattered paint all over the canvas. And if you allow me after the fact with some shears to cut out the part that's green, 
I can cut out a piece that, you know, like you can find the part that looks whatever color you want. Uh, it doesn't mean it's a real signal. And the whole purpose is to ask, is there some signal here? Um, okay, so I concede to you that that's unusual for JAMA. Now, the next point you're making about the other study is it's an unblinded study of a device where the manufacturer is telling you this might make you feel better and you know you're getting it compared to a group of people who know they're not getting it. And then they ask you, did you feel any better? And you say, I feel better. And that's not exactly credible science either because it's the placebo effect until proven otherwise. You need a sham control. Right, right. we'll talk about that. But I mean, and not only not only did the Monitor HF trialists do that, not only did they, they design this trial like this, right? So it was from the design. But the other thing that they did is they also looked at heart failure hospitalizations. So everybody knows that a heart failure hospitalization is a, a subjective endpoint. I mean, somebody has to decide to, you have a patient with congestive symptoms, some are going to get sent home, some are going to get put in a hospital, and everybody knows they're in a trial, everybody knows they, they which arm they're in in a trial. And so, I mean, this is why we have placebo effect, placebos. But here's my, here's my problem, Denai, here's the problem that really gets me, is that don't you think that everybody knows this? Don't you think the authors know this? Don't you think the peer reviewers know it? And don't you think the editors of the journal knows it? So everybody knows it, yet it's still done. And so that's the part that bothers me most because of course, you know, uh, benpidoic acid is a small slice of the world's problems as is the the the, the PA monitor. Can I give you another example? But I mean, yeah. well, okay. Uh, I mean, you're, the point you're making is that the journal editors know better. Also the authors, right? They're the authors should know better. Okay, I'll give you one more example to add to your pile. You remember there's a paper a few weeks ago from the group in Boston, and they looked at like whether or not school districts that kept masking kids had lower COVID than those that let go of the mask of kids. This is by Calgary and colleagues. And they found like, lo and behold, it did. Well, we took the data set for Massachusetts and we extended the date range. We went back a little bit further in time to create a different baseline. Uh, and then we went forward a little bit in time and we show that their entire conclusion is invalid. Like if you, it's just because they've sort of have a certain snapshot of data that happened to work, but then if you extend the date range to the whole data set, it doesn't work. We submitted that to New England Journal and guess who didn't want to publish it? Okay, so here's the thing. Two examples of something that's low credibility that favors the drug company and Lancet and JAMA are happy to publish. Another example of something that's, you know, the dogma that masking kiddos helps and we have a reanalysis that really shows it doesn't, and it's better because we have more data, we have a better data set, and they don't want to publish that. And so then the overall question is, the question is, do they care about the truth or do they care about something else? And why would they care about something other than the truth? It doesn't make sense that they should, but I think they do. The, the problem is that buried within these journals or in these journals, not buried, but in these journals are really important advancements in medicine and yeah, science. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they publish important stuff and there, there are discoveries, um, you know, the, the, the hepatitis C drugs, for instance. I mean, there's, there's big developments, uh, many in your field and some in my field, but yet how is a, how is a consumer of evidence going to, uh, how are we going to sort through that? I mean, uh, when we when when you have these other studies that are there, how, how does how does one how does one trust 
uh, anything. If 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 these completely biased things are in these journals, I, I really, I don't know. I I I try to you know I, I write about studies every week and I I think about it and I I try to not stay cynical, but man, it's hard. So I think there are a few competing interests. So one is I do think the journal editors to some degree care about the truth. I mean, they want to know if this, you know, what's it called? Benzoproic acid. What is it? Benzoproic acid. Whatever the hell it is. This a- They want to know if this acid actually lowers LDL and improves outcomes. No, it, does, it does lower LDL. And it well, that's easy. Lots of things. Outcomes. Yeah. Lots of things lower. Fe- uh, didn't uh, phenofibrate lower LDL too? And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. 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 And, and no. And the other problem with, of course, the other the other problem with clear outcomes is they chose statin intolerant patients, and and we know from placebo. Oh, well, studies, now they're all statin intolerant. <laughs> well, we, uh, right, we know from placebo studies that that's a difficult thing to sort out. Yeah. Um, okay. Wait. Uh, so, so I mean, okay. So, some degree they care about whether or not the drug works. To some degree, they care about whether or not the device works, and to some degree, they care about the true answer to like whether or not we should mask kids. I think they do care to some degree. Now, what are the other things they care about? One is probably the reason New England doesn't want to accept our um, reanalysis of the paper is they care about the fact that they're going to look like morons. I mean, they published a non-randomized observational data set making causal claims in the New England Journal, which by the way is rare. And now we have a better analysis shows that they were wrong. They're going to look like morons, have egg on their face. They don't want to put the egg on their face. They're like, fine, let them put the egg on my face, but I'm not going to help you do it. So they care about truth, but they also care about their own you know, reputation. The third thing they care about I think is reprint sales, like whatever that, God, that B acid, I call it B acid. Um, <laughs> Nissen is publishing it in the JAMA. I don't know what the reprint sales are, but I suspect it's not going to be zero. Like they're going to make money from having published that. So they care about that money. And then the fourth thing I think they care about is care about having a favorable relationship with these companies so that the company, when they do have that game changer product, will decide to publish it in their journal because that helps their impact factor. Um, and then maybe the fifth thing is the impact factor itself, which is that even if the study's not perfect, it's going to be cited a lot. And so, I mean, your point about conflict is maybe only one of those is monetary. The other conflicts are impact factor, reputation, um, ego. Uh, and, you know, I guess I, like you, am an idealist. It should be about the truth. It's not. And that bothers me. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, I mean, it's okay. So, what if there was a? What if there were, you know, independent? What if, What if we had an independent uh, means of publishing this? You put your reanalysis on a on a preprint server, and then and then uh, independent, uh, you know, uh, a free press type of thing in medicine could write about this, and and maybe there's going to be maybe going forward there's going to be some corrective force. Maybe New England could just say, look, you know. We're, you know, we're publishing this reanalysis, and this is how science works. And this, this study didn't re, didn't replicate, and that's not uncommon. And and there's so many lessons. Yes. Just by by admitting egg on the face, you could you could improve trust. But I know, of course, uh, that's idealist, and I know it probably doesn't work that way. But like you know, from being with patients, if you say, "Look, uh, I changed my mind," or "This wasn't a good path," we're going to change the path, and yeah, I mean, I think that Im- improves trust. Absolutely. And there's no excuse for, I think there's no excuse for New England not publishing a reanalysis. To be honest, John, they took a gamble by publishing the original study. 
publishing observational causal paper is not their it's not their ballywick. It's not what they're used to doing. They didn't used to do it a lot. We have a paper on whether or not how often they've done it. That's in the you know that's going to be coming out soon. We're pr we've proven that they are lowered their standards because of COVID, and it blew up in their face. And they should admit it. Um, back to uh, this. Um, uh, uh, oh, one more example. You said preprint server. I think you're right. The solution is going to be something like a preprint server plus a sensible medicine. That's going to be the real solution because these other groups are not going to pursue the truth. But let me tell you a story about the, the preprint server. We have a paper out now on statistical and methodologic errors by the CDC. Elon Musk tweeted it the other day. Elon said, this is a really good paper or something like that. This really makes you worry about the CDC. And that gave us like another 10,000 page clicks. And our paper is hosted on SSRN, the preprint server. But that wasn't the first preprint server I sent that paper to. I sent it to MedRVX and MedRVX said, we're not going to publish your preprint. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? You're not going to publish my preprint. And then they said, because, you know, they disagreed with our sampling method for how we found the errors. And then I was like, look, we acknowledge the limitations of our sampling method in the paper, but it's not your prerogative. You're not a reviewer on this manuscript. Your job is just to see whether or not the authors did what they said they did. We did do what we said they did. There's no type, you know, there's no typographical errors. There's no fraud in the paper. You don't have the role to not put it up on your server. And then let's say, why really didn't they put it on the server? They're friends with the CDC director. I mean, what are we talking about? They're friends with Rochelle Walensky, the person who made all these errors, made many of these errors. They don't want their friend to be tarnished on their preprint server. And, that's, that's a, and it's also political because they're left of center. This is a paper that attacks a Biden appointee, et cetera. What am I to think? This is not the pursuit of truth. This is a broken system so broken and so this preprint server is going to have to be replaced with something that's more impartial and i suspect that that will happen um but you know i mean this is not a good system yeah and and let me ask you this you you've been i've been out longer than you do you think it's worse or or is it just we're kind of like getting old and more cynical and we think it's worse but i i really wonder maybe i was just naive when i was younger um I don't know, or maybe I just never looked under the hood as much as I do now, but it, it, I wonder, do you think it's worse? I guess let's have the two hypotheses. So one is it's worse. And then the other way is that we notice more. Why might we notice more? We notice more because as you say, you and I are both better readers than we were five years ago and better than we were 10 years ago. The other reason we notice more is that you and I are friends and were it not for social media, we would never even know each other. Right. Blogs and Twitter, and we wouldn't know each other. So, you know, 15 years ago, when I started in medicine, a little bit more than that now, 18 years ago, um, you know, uh, uh, if there's no way for like, if you and I both read the same paper and we had the same concern, we could never meet and talk about it. So maybe part of it is that sort of, you know, we're getting together and that's a good thing. But I also feel like I do think that's getting worse. Um, and why do I think it's getting worse? I mean, I think part of it, John, is like, because it should be getting better. Like if you look at the quality of a randomized study from 1950 to 2000, the quality is so much better. It's like bigger sample size, better power calculation, better reporting of how randomization, everything is getting better methods wise. And yet these problems of bias, they don't appear to be getting much better. And in fact, like, as you say, like why, why is anyone taking some of this seriously? Um, can I give one yeah. last example? Uh, the thing that hey, I was, go ahead, no go. Give, well, give one, yeah. The last example I was like complaining about was like there's a colon cancer drug, and they tested against sugar pill, but everybody who reads the paper knows like 
I wouldn't give my mother sugar pill on the control arm. They're like drugs I would give her. And then proof that they would have done that is that when they came off the study, they gave those drugs afterwards, after sugar pill, meaning that like they wanted to do it anyway. And I'm like, why is this in the Lancet? Why is nobody saying like, well, even we're pretty troubled by the control arm, like being, you know, beneath the standard of care. Why is no one saying that? And so that to me, it feels more brazen. Maybe it's not worse, but it's brazen. Did, was that in the, was, was that even listed as a limitation? No, like, no, no, nobody said it was a limit. I was like, it's unethical. That's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's another problem, right? I mean, because the, the, the examples that I cite, these are the, 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 the fatal flaw is listed as a limitation of the paper, but they, 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 they do it anyways. And so, yeah. I don't know. And let me ask you this. I don't know anything about colon cancer, but do you think the authors, the the authors and the scientists involved with that study know about this? I think or are they just that. academics who they're just so clinically, uh, inex they do so little clinical work that they don't know? Or do they know and they do it anyways? Because that's the worst that's I the think, worst. I think point. they know and they do it anyways. And I and, and proof to me that they know and they do it anyways is like the way they treat people outside of their study versus the way they treat people on their study, um, the way they would, I mean, to me, the standard is simple. If your father was on the control arm, are you gonna withdraw him from the study? And if yeah. the answer is you're gonna withdraw your father from the study, cause you're like, there's no way I'm letting my father get nothing when I want him to get something, cause he's my father. You gotta have the same standard for everybody. I mean, what are we doing here? That's not, this is treat people like you would your own parents. It's not a hard standard. I mean. So why do they do it? I think the sad reality is the company comes to them and says, listen, we're running this multinational study. Do you want, and I don't even think this, I know this. Do you want to be the PI of this study? It's either you or someone else and, you know, we can make you the PI. That means you're getting the first or last author. You know, you're getting all the accolades. You get to present it at the ASCO. And it's tempting because if you say no, it's just going to go to like, you know, your med school classmate. He's going to take it. You know, so you have no incentive to say like, well, I'm troubled by your study, so no, then he's going to get all the glory. Um, so to me, it's a broken system. It's a race to the bottom, to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, I think that it is a broken system, but I also think that your point about like you and I being connected and and uh, Foy and Sifu and, and Dan Morgan and all these others, um, but also it's it's more than just us being connected, right? Because if a if a if a dubious study goes up on Twitter, it can get hammered on Twitter very quickly, and it's a worldwide platform. I mean, you got Elon Musk tweeting, but but even that, I mean, you, we have these groups, and I don't think that in the old days, before social media, there there the the academic world had more control, right? There was just a yes. presentation of a paper in a meeting, and it can be controlled, and and the the, the message was already out there, and a journalist covered it, and now. Uh, social media really, I mean, it's, I, I'm not saying social media is perfect because there's a lot of horse hockey there, but at least, yeah. at least uh, studies have to face the music publicly. Absolutely. We'll switch to placebo, but then one last thought. Um, you remember that paper that was published in CNN that said um, a black baby born in Florida had twice the risk of death if the doctor was white than black. That paper, nobody wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole because it confirmed a narrative that representation hashtag saves lives. Uh, I looked at that paper. I it realized instantly it was pretty much garbage. They had no proof that the doctor listed on that form actually took care of the baby. The effect size was implausibly large. 
for a doctor, even if you believe representation is good, which I do, and that the, the doctor should be proportionate to the demographics of America broadly, I do actually think that would be a worthwhile goal. And the best way to get that goal is to have equality of education early in life. Uh, I think that's the way to get to the goal. Um, even if you hold that goal, you know, uh, uh, you couldn't criticize this paper. Nobody criticized this paper. And then the Supreme Court cited this shit paper in their, you know, affirmative action decision in the dissent. So to me, it's like, my God, even though we are at the time where, like you say, Twitter can have the best peer review, something that's just so bad can be cited in the Supreme Court. And I saw a stat news article citing another paper that I covered on Sensible Medicine about, you know, representation that was also flawed in other ways. Um, look, if something fits a narrative, it's exempt from traditional criticism. Like, right, if something fits a social political narrative, it's exempt. But this wants me, I want to pull my hair out about this because- we we talk endlessly about the flaws of observational study. It's accepted. Like if you publish an observational study about vitamin D or about exercise or saunas or blueberries, no one would have a problem criticizing it. But because this is a because this is a politically sensitive topic, you can't criticize it. And then uh, the such a flawed analysis gets cited in a Supreme Court record. And and and. Uh, this boggles my mind because this just speaks to the the fact that we we have a lot of work to do in promoting critical appraisal uh, and and neutral adjudication of science. Yeah, and as a liberal, it bothers me because I actually think that I mean, if you really cared about the issue, the underrepresentation of blacks and other underrepresented minorities in medicine, you would have opposed school closure as I did as a progressive liberal, and you would have fought to improve the quality of education in schools that cater predominantly to underrepresented minorities, which people are silent about vastly. And then they fucked up during the pandemic, the same people who claim that this is, that's the most important time in someone's kid's life. What are you talking about? Anyway, all right, let's talk yeah. about placebo. Let's all talk right. about placebo. Um, I had a video where uh, I was trying to explain to some of these uh, people who are, who are up in arms about vaccine placebos that you know, there's no perfect placebo. You can have a placebo that's really, really close to the intervention minus the quote unquote active ingredient. And it has a lot of advantages for blinding people and maybe just isolating the efficacy. Um, and you can have a placebo that's truly an inert substance, which is really great for finding the safety gradient of something. Um, sometimes the placebo can't be nothing because we would have done something like that Fruquitin example. And you were telling me about uh, an example of the fish oil drug. I wonder maybe, how do you think about placebo? Like, you know, what, yeah, we can, let's talk about placebos. What's the example you're thinking so, about? So the fish oil example, the fish oil example is this, that there are, uh, there are kind of three trials, um, three big randomized trials that looked at fish oil supplementation for cardiovascular benefit. And it makes sense because it lowers triglycerides and it maybe has some anti-inflammatory effects, but two, two big trials have found no benefit from fish oil, really a, a, a null effect. And then this uh, reduced trial comes out and it shows a very substantial, statistically significant p-value like 0. 0.000 whatever, and it reduces cardiovascular outcomes. And it's a special kind of fish oil, icosapen ethyl. It's, it's just a different formulation. It's, it's, it's more pure and, and I can't remember exactly, but it's a different fish oil. And so this is the reason why people think that this is a beneficial drug. However, to maintain blinding, which we just talked about why blinding is so important, 
to maintain blinding, they used a mineral oil placebo because if you're taking a fish pill, I think it's pretty easy to tell if you're not taking a fish pill. So they use this mineral oil, but then the mineral oil placebo, uh, when you look at the when you look at the statistics, actually raised uh, uh, LDL and had. It was, like a, know, it was like a lot of oil capsules. It was like it's like eating a fistful of mineral oil, wasn't it? It was like yeah, it was yeah, like, not it, a little it, bit. It was a good amount. There were there were rises in in the. I think there was a, even a rise in CRP, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, but LDL were, goes up, CRP goes up, and they have more diarrhea. Their diarrhea. Yeah, yeah. and the and and the, the argument. One argument says that the reason why this drug, this icosapentethyl, this this kind of fish oil looked beneficial, was that it just did that the the placebo group did worse, and then the the counter to that is that no, this is a special fish oil that's not like the others. I think it was more EPA EPA pure, um, and that the amount of LDL rise in the mineral oil group wasn't enough to explain. Uh, this this delta. So we're left with we're left with we just don't know. But the the problem is that because the markers went up in the placebo group, we we don't know. And so this is a I I think it was kind of a I think it was kind of a legitimate thing they were trying to maintain blinding, um and and it didn't work out. Yeah, and I think the logic is that the mineral oil impaired the absorption of the statin that they should have been on. Yeah, that's another. Well, that's an, right, right, and that's why the that's, that's why the LDL why the, goes up, right? Yeah, that's why yeah. the LDL goes up because it's like uh, this fish oil capsule. What is it? Amarin Pharmaceuticals fish oil is better yeah. than a mineral oil enema, which is what the control arm got. <laughs> so, so I mean, and I think I don't know if you mentioned it in your video. I, I loved your video; it was great. But the other, the other very, very amazing. I think one of the most amazing studies in the last ten years was this. Uh, James Howard and Daryl Francis uh, called Samson trial, where they're looking at statin statin effects, right? And so everybody complains of statin side effects. And so they it, they took patients who were statin intolerant, only a hundred of them, a hundred intolerant patients, and they got them randomized uh, to be in the study. And it was this one n plus one study, right? where where they 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 got a placebo to look exactly like the statin pill. And then one month, they gave patients a statin. One month, they gave them the statin placebo. One month, they gave them no tablets. And then the patients uh, put their quality of life in a daily app. And they found, remarkably, this is the coolest thing. They found that um, patients had really the same amount of ill health, whether they took a statin or the statin placebo. The best months were when they took no tablets. And so the conclusion of this amazing study is this amazing study was that yes statins cause side effects but it's not from the statin chemical it's from taking the statin tablet and whether it has the statin in it or not and so it was just a remarkable demonstration of the of the nocebo which is the opposite of the placebo effect so yeah and that that, that of course plays into this whole benpidoic acid study which randomized only statin intolerant patients but i mean what what does that really mean I thought that the Samson found like nine out of 10 people, it was due to the thought they were on a statin, but one out of 10, it was due to the statin or something like that. Yeah, it was like, uh, it wasn't 100%. It was like, 100%, yeah. It was like 90 plus percent. 90, so yeah, okay. it was no statistically significant difference I between see. the adverse effects of the statin placebo versus the, the, the months on statin placebo versus the months on 
on statin drugs. So it's like almost all due to the act of taking the statin. Uh, The thought of it. That's interesting. Yeah. No, I think that's one thing people forget that a placebo that you expect bad things from will be a nocebo. It'll cause bad things. And, uh, yeah, it's a, such an interesting field. I mean, the examples I gave in my video were a trial of the drug versus placebo when you wanted to give another drug, a drug versus another drug where you weren't really worried that there was that there was no placebo. Um, I conceded to some of these vaccine people that you know if you do test Gardasil versus this like ad, this solution that contains ammonium or not ammonium uh, aluminum, this uh, aluminum compound preservative, uh, that yeah they have more arm pain than if you tested against saline because they had a three arm study in the Gardasil. Um, you know, the thing is, um, I don't know. And somebody said, I still say they don't have enough power to look for things like the side effects they're worried about, like autism. And somebody said like, oh, that um, autism is one in 36 or whatever. So therefore you should have power. They're missing. It's not the absolute, okay, people, it's not the absolute risk of an adverse event that determines the power. It's the delta from the product. Okay, so you gotta, I mean, to be honest, I find it kind of, fr- I mean, uh there are legitimate points to be made in this space, like improving the safety of vaccines and other medical products and drugs. I just think that if you get into the space and you speak very, I think, loosely, not helping anybody, uh, even the- Yeah, the- but I mean, the, the, it transcends vaccines. I mean, I understand yeah. the vaccine is politically hot potato, but yeah. I mean, this whole business about renal denervation, right? Buzzing the kidneys to treat hypertension. And I'll never forget, I mean, there was more excitement than you could imagine about uh, uh, burning the kidneys. And then finally, finally, these were all un, 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 uh, no sham. And then finally, they did a big Simplicity 3 hypertension study with a sham, and they found really no difference. Uh, because if you if you do a procedure and you don't do a sham, then patients are just going to feel different, they're going to get treated differently. And so the this this whole notion of blinding is so is so important but yet you know it's it's hard to it's hard to conceive of it right who would have thought you mentioned orbita i mean russia alami the uh, pi they published these these lesions because they figured no one would believe them right and these are gnarly ass lad yeah. lesions that no one walks away from right, right. and so they randomize patients to a pressure wire across that thing and nothing and then they end up having no difference in, in anginal walk time or anginal quality of life or any of that. Now, that, that is just, that is just, you know, you got to have serious, you know, courage to, to do a study like that. But if you don't do studies like that, then uh, we don't know. We haven't done one in my field for afib ablation. I mean, there's been a couple that are being done, but we go in there and we, take these patients and we buzz their left atrium. We do all these burns. It's a 90 minute, 16 to 90 minute procedure where they come out and, and, and they feel cared for. And you say, you're going to feel better. And sure enough, they, they, they do feel better uh, for the most part, but we don't have a sham. So I think this notion of blinding cannot be talked about enough. Can't be talked about enough. And maybe I'll put the audio for this video at the end of this track. So listeners, yeah, yeah. stick to it. Let's talk about the cancer screening. I wrote this, um, yeah, I posted it today on Sensible Medicine, and I feel like it's getting a crazy response. I mean, it's already got like 200 likes and a lot of comments um, uh, just in a few hours. And what was the story? The story was, oh, it's a true story. Um, there was a guy in Oregon who was doing a lot of lung cancer, and he quit. 
And, you know, like often is the case, John, like uh, the youngest person on faculty, he's going to inherit all the patients. And so I got like, I think a third of his patients. He was a lung cancer doctor. I wasn't even doing lung cancer at the time. Um, but like so often is the case, you get thrown a curveball in your career and actually you learn a lot of things along the way. So it pushed me to do some stuff I wasn't doing. And I learned a lot and, you know, met and touched a lot of, and was touched by a lot of people. Um, one was this really interesting guy, 74 year old guy. Um, he was super thin, John, like you put your hand on him and he, you know, he's wearing like a, like a flannel shirt, put your hand on him, just feel like a skeleton under there. I'm like, this is the thinnest guy. His fingertips were huge from being hit on with hammers, but also probably from, you know, from smoking itself. His, his fingernails were just caked with black, like grease plus nicotine. And he had like a 200 pack year smoking history. He smoked like four packs a day for decades. And he was just smoking all the time. And, you know, I talked to him and he like lives alone in Oregon, got this garage, works on these old cars. He showed me some pictures, you know, he does great work, you know, and it's summertime and Oregon's gorgeous. He just likes to sit out there with the garage door open, some music on the radio, working on his cars and smoking and no kids, no family, lives alone. Um, then about, and then he said, you know, I was always fine until the doctors sunk their tentacles into me. He got some routine exam about a few years ago. They recommended a colonoscopy and uh, lung cancer screening because of smoking history and all this blood work. You know, so they checked his cholesterol. They sent him for colonoscopy, but he never did it because he had to drink the fluid. And he was like, screw, you know, I'm not I'm putting, having you put a camera there. No way. He doesn't do that. But the lung cancer thing is like, oh, it's just a scan. I just lay there. It's no big deal. I'll do that. So he came in and he did it. Of course, his lungs with 200 pack years got tons of little nodules in it. Um, we, you know, he gets put on the follow-up train. They biopsy three, he finds one cancer, they cut it out, they do a dissection, they give him adjuvant chemotherapy, which is, you know, arguably the standard of care, although not really from a lung cancer screen derived population, but nonetheless standard of care. Then he gets followed up again, he finds another cancer, they cut it out, they give him more chemotherapy, this time they're like way past any data that I'm aware of. Then he comes back again, they find a third cancer, and then they want me to give him more chemotherapy. And I was like, what are we doing to this guy? Like, we're just giving him chemo and radiation and surgery and we're carving him up. And if I recall, he came in saying, I feel fine, <laughs> you know? Um, and so anyway, so then the story is really about, I go back to him and I talk to him and, you know, he basically told me like, you know, doctor, I, I don't want anything. I just want to work on my car. I don't even care how long I live. Whatever time I got, I want to be out there. You know, I really, this doesn't interest me. And then, of course, I paired it with the evidence base for lung cancer screening, which is bad. I mean, they don't improve survival. And so then the essay is really a meditation on, you know, what are we doing in medicine? This is the point that you love so much, which is you take a guy who, yeah, he's not perfect. He smokes a lot and he works on cars and he had a hard life. But you tell him, I'm going to make you better. You don't have proof that that's true. And you actually are ruining his life along the way. What are we doing? That's the essay. But but how can, I mean, I'm just... I've looked at the data, but I'm just going to ask just from a common sense standpoint. I mean, if you take a guy like this, who's been smoking so much, I mean, and then, I mean, how could you possibly, how could you possibly not benefit him from finding cancer in his lungs at a, at a stage where you could cut it out? And, and, you know, we, we have these studies and they're, we, I mean, all the centers in, in my city have lung cancer screening uh, have lung cancer screening uh, programs. Um, we, we have nodule clinics. Um, and uh, I mean, how, how could this not work? 
I mean, yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm gonna I'm working on an essay where I try to explain why it doesn't work. I think part of it is that like every time you find something that looks like cancer and you biopsy it and it looks like cancer under the microscope, it's really one of three things. I think it's a lesion you found that if you just do nothing, it's never going to cause harm in your lifetime. It's a lesion you found that unfortunately is already metastasized or is going to metastasize no matter what you do anyway. So it's going to kill you anyway. And then the third category is, is it's a lesion you found that if you cut it out now, you save a life. But if you don't, if you, if you didn't do it now, you wouldn't, you'd lose the life. And that's what you're looking for, that kind of intermediary scenario. And the truth is, we just don't know what the blend of these is when we do screening. And one thing I always point out in these, in these screening trials is, whether it's PSA or mammograms or colon or lung, the, the intervention arm that gets all the screening like you're supposed to, they never have zero death from breast, prostate, lung, colon. If anything, at best, it's like 20%. Like the, in other words, screening only reduces the risk by 20%, which means 80% is like unchanged. So similarly, you could ask like, why doesn't screening lower to zero? Like your screening should be 0%. Like you shouldn't die of lung cancer. And the truth is, again, there's some things that explode in between scans or, you know. And so, you know, I just think it goes back to what you say, John. Like we're not humble. We are so arrogant that we know if it looks like this under the microscope, it was going to kill you unless I cut it and gave you chemo and radiation. But the truth is, we don't know that. We know that for people who presented with symptoms, you know, from older studies, we don't really know that for people who had the cancer found through screening. We don't know about secular trends in, I don't know, the mutational profile or the biology or the risk of, you know, environmental exposure. We don't really have the evidence for a lot of this. We we have a world, we have a view in our mind that we're omnipotent, but the truth is we're really mostly impotent. I mean, we're really just kind of doing much for our patients. Um, that's not to say we can never do anything. Sometimes we have great things, as you point out, but most of what we do, I think, is marginal, especially when you go after people who say, I feel fine. You know, that's really the worst part to me. Yeah, there's so much to say about that because if, if like you talked about that effect size of 20%, like you can reduce cancer that you're screening for by 20%. Well, we all die. We have 100% mortality. So that means that you're not affecting 80% but you're exposing everybody to the potential downsides of, of screening. And so I don't know, I, there's this big argument amongst people um, that I argue with and online, and you've seen the argument that reducing a disease specific death is a reasonable thing. This comes up in cardiac screening all the time. My colleagues that like cardiac screening uh, say that it is reasonable to look at cardiovascular death as an endpoint for cardiac screening. But I'm like, no one really signs up to get a major scan or a procedure or whatever to prevent one kind of dying. You're doing it to prevent, you're doing it to live longer. You're doing it, I'm going to do this. So instead of dying at 70, I might live to 80. But the problem is, is that like you said, you can only affect that one slice yeah. of, of 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 reason for dying. But the the hubris that I see is that we work in hospitals. I mean, we have colleagues who who you know who get hit by buses, get uh, hit on their cycle on a bicycle, they get brain tumors, that get ALS, that get I mean, fifteen thousand different things you can get. And how how do we come to the idea that? preventing one disease will change overall survival. It boggles my mind that we think this. 
it boggles my mind. It's 20% of one slice. And the way they talk about it, they want to have their cake and eat it too. On the one hand, they say, well, if you're a smoker, lung cancer is an incredibly common cause of death. And we're intervening on the most important thing we could. And on the other hand, but we would never have statistical power to find an all-cause mortality benefit because you could die of a million other things. So which is it? Is it so important? Yeah. That, you know, right? Is it a huge signal or is it like lost in the in the bucket of death? And Don, the truth is, I mean, the truth is, gosh, how many times have I seen somebody who they got all this cancer screening and then they had leukemia, which is totally unrelated, maybe. How many times have I seen somebody who got all this medical stuff done to them and then they died on a, in a skiing accident or you know in a car accident? And I guess that's a humility, which is that like you didn't benefit them if they were gonna die of the car accident anyway. You just wasted their time. You just wasted yeah. their time with that procedure. This comes up in this comes up in cardiology with these coronary artery calcium screens. You know, people get, you know, you got to find out if you have coronary artery calcium because if you do, we can we can treat it more aggressively or whatever. And and I don't know. I mean, uh, they say I say, well, do a trial. Show me show me that this show me that this reduces some some outcome. And they're like, no, we, we'd have to randomize too many patients. So whenever I hear that, that means that the effect size is so small that we should just live our life. And I think this goes back way upstream to the philosophy, right? Yeah. So, so, so it's like it's like constrained and unconstrained vision. It's just like I, I, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. We, 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 we treat sick people. We, we help them. We, we pay attention. Teach people to pay attention to symptoms. But there's a lot of stuff that we just can't control, and that's actually a. I think that's a wonderful thing because then you don't have to worry. Let you don't have to worry you, about yeah. it. Yeah. Let me paint you three scenarios. You tell me what you think. Okay, so we're talking a lot about like the Western medicine model, which is like people eat terrible and they don't go up for exercise and they're like in their car all the time and they're like eating fast food and like we don't do anything to stop this like obesity epidemic. In fact, you know, we say that's totally fine, you know, but then we're going to screen you for all these diseases and, you know, th so that's really the world we're living in. That's one. Two. Then there's these health nuts. I see this guy, this billionaire wants to turn back aging and like become 18. And what's his regimen? He only eats for three hours a day or two hours a day. He dunks himself in ice cold and then boiling water. I mean, he's always doing, there's always some cold, there's some hot, there's some fasting, there's some eating chocolates and then his supplements. It's like L-carnitine and this and that. And then the milk chisel, chestnut, I don't know what the fuck he's, he's taking all these supplements. I'm surprised he can even swallow so many capsules and he's exchanging his blood and he's doing all this stuff. And then there's, I feel like there's a group here. It's just you and I, like maybe like 10 people. And here's what we believe, you know, I, let me tell you, tell me what I believe. Like, I pretty much like, as you, you know, I don't believe in a lot of screening. You're not, unless you improve all cause mortality in randomized fashion, uh, really, and, and nothing's getting there. Like, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in taking fistfuls of supplements and vitamins. You don't need that anyway. I mean, it's not so hard. One, like, you know, try to eat good food. Two, try to exercise a lot. Uh, three, try to keep your weight down. Uh, you know, four, um, you know, don't eat too much. I mean, and you know, and then you all, we always feel ourselves like, I feel like I'm a little, I'm three pounds heavier. I'm just going to cut back. Like I'm not going to eat anything for a while. And, 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 and then exercise some more, you know, and, and, um, and that's it. That's all you can do. That's all that's in your control. And then, you know, then it's life, it's fate. Uh, and then have some stoicism about life. That's that. So that's my philosophy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I don't think it's wrong to advise people to live a healthy lifestyle. I mean, if they're interested, if they're seeing you, they're probably interested in health, although cardiology, like my field and your field, we're mostly treating sick people. But if they're seeing a doctor, 
of course, if you're interested in health, do all those things. But on the other hand, I've come full circle. Like the guy you described who wants to smoke and and hang out with his cars and whatever. I'm like, dude, fine. I mean, go for it. I'll take care of you when you're sick, you know? And when you complain of something, I'll help you. If you have an arrhythmia, I'll try and fix you. But I'm not like making any moral judgments about all of that business. Now, I I do... I, I I actually think of those three, uh, the guy who's trying to like be super healthy. There's one of my favorite books of all time. It's free. Uh, it's the death of humane medicine. Peter Scrobanek. He died. He's an Irish uh, was an Irish guy, and he writes with one of the first lines: "The search for health is a symptom of unhealth." And so I just actually think that is that is just totally cattywampus. Now maybe you could argue that he's happy doing all of that business and that's what makes him happy. But I, 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 I think that is, that is bonkers. It's so true actually. And I do, I am sympathetic to the guy who just wants to smoke and work on his car because I mean, two things are true. Like I do think we should discourage 16 year olds today from picking up smoking. True. But a guy who's 76, you know, whatever. And he's no family. Like he's been smoking his whole life and he was brought up in a different world where smoking was acceptable, in fact, maybe even encouraged, uh, you know, enjoy it. And this is something I sometimes think, which is that, you know, many years ago, there's a Dana-Farber speaker I heard at the NIH, and she was saying that, like, when you have a patient with, like, metastatic lung cancer, that's the best time to start smoking cessation. And I was like, what are we talking? I was like, that's the last thing I'd want to take away from somebody who's, like, dying of, and then I was like, and to be honest with you, if I had a terminal diagnosis, I might even take it up. You pick up a yeah. cigarette, you know, and pick it up. It's just, it's, I mean, at that point, you know, what are we, what are we doing here? Maximize my uh, quality of life. Um, but maybe people won't like that thought. But I mean, look, I'm not. It, there's a difference between advising somebody who's healthy not to do it, and you know, if your time is limited and it brings you joy, you know, I do just, it. I yeah. mean, I just think philosophically, um, philosophically, we're we're on the highest. Uh, uh, we're in our. our most apt to be beneficial to society and humans when we're treating people asking for our help. And, um, and when we're, when we're doing prevention, we should have the highest bar of evidence. I mean, we treating a patient with a blood pressure of 180 over hundred, I think there's good evidence for, for treating that. But um, uh, short of things like that, short of treating uh, hyperglycemia and in, in patients with a high hemoglobin A1C, um, I, I just, I just think we're on, we're on shaky ground because we, when you, when you screen people, uh, when you screen people, you bring harm into the, uh, equation. And then, I don't know, I just philosophically have come to believe that we're best when we're treating sick people. I think you're right. It's actually funny because Adam, Adam would disagree, but since he's on service, he's too tired to argue with us. Yeah, but you know, I think he only disagrees in a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit, because we'll bring him on someday and we'll go through all the preventive stuff. But I think some things he'll agree with us. Um, we'll see what he thinks. Um, okay. All right. So I think this was a good discussion. We covered all the things, the journals, the divergence interests. We covered the cancer screen, we covered placebo. I'll post the placebo audio of what I said earlier so people who are interested can just hang on and listen to that. We'll be back with more sensible medicine. What are you working on? What's coming up next, John? For you, what do you what are, what are the projects you're working on? Uh, I have a I have a number of talks coming up. Um, I have a month or two to get ready. So uh, actually going to Europe and South America this fall. So um, 
I'll be in a, in a couple of weeks time, be working on uh, PowerPoint. Well, and then it, I'm going back to Copenhagen at the end of September, giving two days of lectures there to different groups. Then I'm going to South America too in November. And yeah. then my October is my American tour. I'm going all over the place in October. I think I'll be in Honolulu, Columbus, uh, uh, Dallas, uh, and more. Uh, are you, are you, you're flying in row 33, uh, 33C for, for the American trips. <laughs> I have flown in that last row. No, you can't, all you, all you smell is the pungent aroma of the restaurant <laughs> when it opens all the time. And, and my left shoulder sticks into the aisle. So everyone bumps it all the time. Uh, it is a miserable day. It's a miserable to fly, but I guess it tells you that the talk is still worth it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. Oh, it's exciting to be asked. No, so. no doctors flying on a private jet. Let's put it that way. No, but you know, I got to say private jets scare me a little. I, I I don't know if I should be, but yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've actually like not been on a- JFK I'm, Jr. style, that's what you mean? Yeah, yeah. And and, and um, yeah, yeah. I think there was a recent one too where they only had one guy flying and he had a heart attack or something. And yeah. Um, so anyways, not too many doctors flying in private jets. That's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah, I guess I'd be nervous about that. All right, John, pleasure to see you. Until next time. Peace. Welcome back to the channel. I want to talk to you about something that's in the news lately, but it's also an evergreen topic, which is placebo-controlled randomized controlled trials. When do you want a sugar pill? When do you want an active placebo? When do you want the best available medical therapy? When do you want a sham control? Let's get into placebo controls. I think there are lots of misunderstandings out there, and I hope to clarify all of that in this video where I'm going to go through a lot of different studies from drugs to vaccines and more and explain when we use placebo and when we don't and what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of different control arms in, in clinical studies. So on that note, let's get into it. I want to first start by giving you a broad overview of randomized controlled trials. There are many different designs in a randomized study. One commonly used design is the experimental arm, you know, the experimental drug plus the best available care versus a placebo plus the best available care, where I think many people will think that placebo is an inert placebo, something like a sugar pill or something that's just going to give the appearance of the drug but not contain any of the active ingredients and that's in combination with best supportive care or best available care uh, or versus the medication with best available care. That's one design. But you can also do randomized control trials and some drugs have come to market where it's the new drug versus the older drug. In fact, they're not always blinded. Sometimes you know you're getting the new drug and you know you're getting the older drug or the older drug could be something called investigator's choice. We're gonna get into that. And placebo itself is a broad category. What exactly is a placebo? Is it something purely inert? which is, I think, what many people want it to be for some vaccine studies we'll talk about? Is it something that actually is active in some way, i.e., does it contain a bit of other chemical compounds so that the person receiving it doesn't know they're getting the placebo, they don't feel nothing, they feel some side effect? Is that what we want in a study? When And what do you do for a mechanical intervention, a procedure? What kind of control arm do you need for that? So we're going to talk about all these things. We're gonna talk some cancer drugs, we're gonna talk some cardiology stenting, we're gonna talk about vaccines, we're gonna talk about it all. And this is one study that I think is an important one to talk about. This is uh, Checkmate 141, do I remember correctly? 141, which is nivolumab versus investigator choice chemotherapy in second line, had an squamous cell cancer. And what does that mean? That means these are patients who have metastatic cancer, that's cancer that we can measure, that unfortunately there's nothing we can do to get rid of it all. 
and they have already completed one line of treatment, so one course of therapy that might have shrunk the tumor for a while, but eventually it stops working, the tumors start growing in the face of that treatment, and then they're getting put on the second therapy. And the standard of care in the second line setting was what is broadly here called investigator choice. Here they restrict it to one of three drugs. That's a whole other story. You should read some papers that Timothy Olivier and I have done on that. But it's one of those three chemotherapy drugs. That's the control arm, which is what doctors would have given one of these patients outside of the study, arguably, versus nivolumab, the new costly immunotherapy drug from BMS. So for somebody out there who says every time, and this led to drug approval, of course. So if somebody's out there saying that every time a drug is approved, the control arm is an inert placebo, well, that's just incorrect. Because one of the core principles of a randomized control trial is that the control arm should receive the care you would be giving outside of the study. It should be the best available medical care. The question is whether or not by adding on a drug or substituting a drug as this does, do you get a better outcome? So this is really nivolumab plus all the care that goes into having an oncologist who cares about you versus investigator choice and all that care that goes into that. And it is not a placebo-controlled study in the sense it's not an inert placebo, but it is pretty useful at asking whether or not nivolumab improves overall survival, which it does. So I think there's not anybody I know of in oncology who would say that they think the placebo effect or somehow thinking you got or knowing you got nivolumab would have resulted in more people living longer. The placebo effect is very powerful. It can affect all sorts of endpoints like how much pain you feel how your breathing feels if you have asthma, and as we're gonna talk about even how your chest pain feels when you have chronic stable angina. But I've never seen convincing evidence that the placebo effect can increase the amount of time you live. And so if the question, the primary endpoint of the study is overall survival, I think it's acceptable not to have placebo control and to have study design like this, where the control arm is getting arguably the best available therapy. Although I might quibble and say the investigator choice has omitted some drugs, but that's another story. So you better read the paper that Olivia and I did on that. Okay, but what about side effects? So here actually on the top panes show that the outcomes of nivolumab are better in people with pdl one stains that are high and not in people with low. And then they have a whole bunch of quality of life things. And it shows arguably that maybe nivolumab is doing a little bit better than standard therapy. But here a purist might ask themselves, well, how much of the side effects are due to the nivolumab uh, versus like if you had given salt water and how much of the side effects are just due to not getting the chemotherapy and not having those side effects on board. And so I will concede that this trial does not isolate the side effect profile of nivolumab. It was used for the regulatory approval and marketing authorization of nivolumab in the second line setting of hedonic squamous cell cancer. That's a mouthful. But it doesn't actually isolate the side effects of nivolumab. Now, of course, there are some clues along the way because you can compare the side effect profile of an immunotherapy drug against the side effect profile of a cytotoxic drug, and you'll see that there's a whole bunch of different side effects because they tend not to have a lot of overlapping toxicity. So you can start to get a sense of what the nivolumab is doing in terms of side effects. But, you know, a purist would concede that you don't know all of the side effects of nivolumab because the control arm was not getting nothing. They were getting something that has different side effects that may obscure to some degree those side effects. We'll talk more about that when we come to vaccines. But the reason this is such a practice-changing study is that it doesn't matter what those side effects are, they are not so significant that they would push away or uh, erode the big overall survival benefit, the fact that they're living longer. The thing you're measuring is such an important endpoint of how people are doing 
So yes, it might have some side effects, but you know, we know for some confidence, you're going to live a lot longer if you get nivolumab. And I should put an asterisk there. This is a lot longer in the context of oncology. I think many people will say that, boy, even that four-month benefit or you know three-month benefit that you show, uh, it's just not good enough for our patients. And I'm actually quite sympathetic to that. It's still not good enough. Okay. What about an oncology trial where they do do a placebo control, but this time maybe they're getting it wrong? Okay, this is fruquitinib versus placebo in patients with refractory metastatic colon cancer, the Fresco 2 study. I tweeted about it, which I, I think they're not happy about this tweet. I called it a disgusting, unethical placebo control trial in colon cancer just so fruquitinib can win. Okay, so this was the study that people, you know, would have wanted, you know, these pro-placebo people who I think kind of don't have a great understanding of placebo. This is a novel anti-cancer drug versus a inert drug, sugar pill, I think, although they didn't specify exactly what's in the sugar pill, but I'm pretty sure it's an inert substance. Um, in patients with colon cancer who have received multiple prior therapies, in my opinion, they haven't received all of the therapies one might have wanted to give them, but they received multiple prior therapies. They're randomized to the new drug or sugar pill, and we measure survival. Lo and behold, there is an overall survival benefit. People start patting themselves on the back. This is the Kaplan-Meier curve for overall survival. But the problem with the study is that I think they shouldn't have allowed the control arm to get placebo because you wouldn't have given someone placebo outside of the study. You would have given them one of the anti-cancer drugs they've already gotten in the past. You would have recycled it and given it to them again. In fact, very likely you would have given them the drug they hadn't seen in the longest amount of time. And if you were getting 5-FU, there are different ways to give it. You can give it a bolus or infusional. You could have given it in a different way. And by the way, back in the diggity before we had oxaliplatin and irinotecan, we would give 5-FU over and over again, bolus, you know, uh, full, modified full plus six, you know, Mayo protocol. We give it in different ways and we'd still engender some responses. Okay. So my claim is that it shouldn't have been placebo control because that's beneath the standard of care that you would received outside of the study. In fact, they'll do worse than what they would have done outside of the study. And one piece of evidence I marshal to prove my case is in the supplementary appendix, where if you look at what people got after their tumor grew 20% or more, resist 1.1 growth, after it grew on placebo and best supportive care, you see they got 5-FU again, they got Zolota, they got Oxaliplatin, they got some irinotecan and some regorafenib. And my point is just this, if they're going to get these drugs after they progress, a few months down the road, after they've had a chance for the cancer to get worse and their health to deteriorate, imagine how much more patients could have gotten these drugs had you given it to them in the beginning and made this a fruquitinib versus investigator choice randomized control trial, which would have been the more ethical option, which would have been not the more ethical, the only ethical option for this study, in my opinion. So this is a incorrect use of placebo control. Now, one thing it allows you to do is the safety signal, whatever safety events you know, you know it's all the fruquitinib because you just subtract a sugar pill, an inert substance, you subtract the placebo. So you have a really good grasp of the safety, sure, but by the way, I actually don't know if fruquitinib is anything better than giving those old drugs over again. In fact, it might even be worse, and that's kind of a big screw up if you ask me. So what did I say about this study? I said. The trial should have been fruquitinib versus investigator choice, where the patient lives in the USA and has good insurance coverage. That alone is a fair trial. I come back to my golden rule. What if your mother was on the control arm? That's the golden rule. What if your mother was on the control arm? Would you be comfortable 
Everyone who treats colorectal cancer would have pulled their mom off the study, given 5-FU and BEV, or Irene Otikinoxali, or Folfox again, perhaps slightly differently. The proof is that they give it post-progression. And then I said, we all know why the investigators signed on to the unethical trial. You get all the glory from having a Lancet paper, and you, and if you say no, someday they're going to find someone else. So my point here is just that you keep asking, you know, I keep asking for placebo-controlled trials. Sometimes you'll get it, and you don't want it. You don't want it here. It's arguably unethical. I delete the arguably. It's just unethical. Okay. Now, let's talk about vaccines. I'm going to show you a chart. Um, many of the people who are concerned about vaccine safety point to the fact that in randomized control trials of vaccines, the control arm is not pure salt water. I think this is the point that RFK Jr. makes. It's not pure salt water. It's not just water or something totally inert. Um, it's got the adjuvant in it, the amorphous aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfate. It's got something else added to it. And this is an example from the package leaflet of Gardasil, where it was a randomized control trial of Gardasil versus the AAHS control and a saline placebo. They actually had a third arm where some people, a few hundred people, got a pure saline placebo. And actually, it does lend credence to the argument that on the issues of safety, having something added to salt water obscures safety a little bit. So just look at pain. Mild to moderate pain post-dose one was experienced by 62% of people who got Gardasil, 56% of people who just got the uh, AAHS control, and only 33% of people who got the saline placebo. So what does that mean? That means that since Gardasil is doing a little bit worse than the AAHS control, that the active, uh, immunologically active part of Gardasil is increasing the pain, sure. But also the control with something in it, with the amorphous aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfite in it, is doing a little bit worse than saline, which actually shows that had you just given nothing or given saline, the pain would have been even less. So. I think this is a point that some people have, which is fair, that if you want to know the short-term acute side effects of a vaccine very, very clearly, your control arm shouldn't be a solution with the amorphous aluminum in it that will just mask some of the side effects. It should be something totally inert, like a saline or water injection. So this is the point they want to make, and I think we have to concede that point is true, with some caveats. Now, some people say that if it had all been a saline-controlled study, you would have been able to find the thing that they're very worried about, which is something like a link between the vaccine and perhaps something like autism. The problem with that, and then they say by using the aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfate as the control arm, you mask the ability to detect an autism signal because the control arm is getting the thing that they're worried about is causing the autism, perhaps. This is the argument that they would make. Now, the problem with that argument is that, let's just say everybody here who got a placebo which is something like 3,800 people, all got the saline placebo. Well, now you have a study that's roughly, you know, 5,000 versus, let's say, 4,000 people. We can even make a 5,000 versus 5,000 people. Um, your ability to detect the autism signal, uh, it makes less sense here because this is a vaccine given to people who are a little bit older, but let's say you, you know, you took it to childhood immunization vaccine. You just don't have a lot of power. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You got 5,000, 5,000. You just don't have a lot of power for a rare adverse event. Something could be a rare side effect and having a placebo-controlled regulatory study, it's not going to find that. I mean, you need sample sizes in the hundreds of thousands, uh, maybe even the millions to detect really rare and important safety signals. So in my mind, if you want to say the short-term side effect profile of something is obscured by an active control arm in vaccine studies, sure, say that. That's fine. And if we had a saline arm, we would have a better understanding of pain and swelling and erythema redness, sure. 
I'm willing to concede that. But if you want to say that if we had a control arm of saline, we'd be able to find all these things you're concerned about, like autism, et cetera, uh, I'd say, well, you got a power problem there too. So you got two problems. So I don't think you're not going to get too far there. Uh, we're working on some paper where we're going to try to come up with a compromise here that's going to make everybody happy about vaccine safety, I think, because I do think that uh, there are many important points that RFK makes, uh, and some of those points is that our system is not terrific at detecting rare safety signals, as evident by VIT and evident by myocarditis. But this particular point, I'm not really persuaded by the saline. Sure, yeah, give everyone a control arm of saline. You can do that. Uh, the problem then becomes you just don't have the power to find those signals. So, okay. I'm going to come back to the vaccines, but I'm going to talk for a minute about a different randomized control trial. So this is the randomized control trial of a drug. You know, let's put these things in context. This is a randomized control trial of Entresto, which is Secubitril Valsartan. 10,000 people would have been randomized to Secubitril Valsartan versus Enalapril. Here the control arm is a new drug, Secubitril, paired with, so that's drug A, paired with Valsartan, which is an old angiotensin receptor blocker, B, tested against drug C, Enalapril. It's not a placebo-controlled study. Actually, there's nobody here getting a placebo. It's A plus B versus C. And actually, it's even worse than that. It has a double drug run-in period. So if the actual trial design that they used is this, 10,000 people, they stop the ACE or ARB they take, they take an Alipro for 14 days, 1,000 fall off. Then they take Secubitril Valsartan for 28 days, half of it at the half-maximal dose of Valsartan, then the other half of it at the maximal dose of Valsartan, P.S. And Alipro only gets half maximal dose. Another thousand people fall off. Then you get randomized to continue on what you're taking versus switch back. This is a convoluted study design and it led to regulatory approval. No confirmatory study. So for people who say that, oh, only vaccines get away with non-placebo controlled randomized trials. Well, let me tell you that other drug products get away with hell of a lot worse, a hell of a lot worse. I mean, this is just a completely batshit study design. You have half dose in Alipril versus full dose Valsartan. You're adding a new drug that's branded to get you a patent extension. You've got a double drug run-in period of unequal periods of time. The longer you run in, the more you exclude people who are idiosyncratically intolerant to your medication. Then the control arm has to switch therapies. If there's any penalty for switching, it's paid by the control arm only. The intervention arm continues on the therapy and the doses given in the study have nothing to do with the real world dose. This is a literally batshit crazy study that shouldn't be changing practice. This is changing practice. So anyone who thinks that the vaccines, that's where people are getting away with uh, delinquent study design, you need to read more about drugs because they're getting away with very delinquent study design. Finally, if you were to look globally at randomized control trials in cardiology, you will see something like this. This is a paper that Rosa Ahn, who's now at MGH, and I did, where we looked at 46 consecutive drug approvals in cardiology, 141 studies, and we asked how often is a drug versus placebo, 43% of the time drug A versus B, 17% of the time, sometimes it's drug AB versus A versus B, 10% of the time, but is it drug A plus B versus C, and it's only two trials. Side note, the other trial is Bidil, isosorbide hydralazine which require the confirmatory study by the FDA. Okay, so it's not quite the same. It actually has better evidence, in my opinion, than paradigm. Okay, and very rarely do we have double drug run-in periods of unequal periods of time. It's the only example ever. Okay, so back to the placebo control question. Knowing that not all drugs that receive regulatory approval are truly placebo controlled, knowing that the placebo, a true inert placebo, will give you a better safety profile but may subvert your questions of efficacy, as in the fruquitinib example, we come back. This is a table created by a lawyer. I haven't uh, 
checked every single data point on this table, but uh, I think the thrust of the table strikes me as generally probably pretty accurate, which is that these randomized control trials of vaccine used a control group that didn't really get salt water. They got a different vaccine or had no control group, uh, in which case they say it's not truly placebo-controlled except for the Gardasil example. Um, Look, I'm happy to concede that by having active active placebo in vaccine studies, you're going to mask some of the short-term safety signals. Um, the part that I'll have difficulty conceding is that you would detect rare longer-term safety concerns because I think you'll struggle with the power issue. I have a solution for it. We're going to manuscript. We're going to submit. It's going to solve it all for all of y'all. Okay, but I'm trying to explain, I think, the principles of placebo control. This is a good example where I see this lawyer has extracted like what is the placebo and in FOIA documents says the placebo of this vaccine study was two mLs of sucrose, sodium citrate, sodium phosphate, and no greater than X milligrams of polysorbate 80, which is many of the ingredients in the actual vaccine. And so then the argument is that if any of those ingredients caused any sort of local site reaction or anything, that would be obscured. I think that argument is well taken. But can any of these ingredients given a low dose really cause long-term sequela? I'm generally skeptical of that claim, but you know, they take it more seriously, and it's hard to refute it in the absence of a third arm, which is really salt water. Okay, the last topic. Now, when might active placebos actually be desirable and good, okay? Can it be flipped on its head? Let's think about SSRIs. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors is a popular class of uh, medication for people who suffer from major depressive episodes or anxiety. And it turns out if you randomize people to Prozac or sugar pill, there's also lots of games about running here. But if you're randomized on a Prozac or sugar pill, what you're really curious about is whether or not the Prozac makes you feel better, okay, than the sugar pill. But one might imagine that when you take a Prozac versus sugar pill, there'll be some side effect of the Prozac that kind of clues you in you might be getting something. You might have a little dry mouth, a little kind of fuzzy feeling. You might feel some sensation that gives you the clue that maybe I'm not on the sugar pill arm, Maybe I'm on the Prozac arm. And if you come to believe that the study is intended to make you feel better, if you come to believe that SSRIs are incredibly promising, what might happen is you take the pill, you get a metallic taste, the metallic taste makes you think you're getting something real, then you start to feel better, not because the pill made you feel better, but because the metallic taste reminded you that you might be getting the real thing and so you ought to feel better. So this is called unblinding. You're being unblinded by the side effect of the pill and your sensation of feeling better is not due to the neuroscience of the pill, but rather the power of suggestion, the placebo effect of the metallic taste. Possible. In order to correct for that, the control arm, maybe it shouldn't just be a sugar pill, which would allow this sort of unblinding to happen. Maybe it should be a pill that has a little metallic taste to it. So now both groups get the metallic taste. One gets the SSRI, one doesn't get it, but it's a sugar pill with a little bit of metallic taste on it. Now we both feel like we might be getting something. Well, does the SSRI have a added benefit beyond the suggestion that I'm getting something? Now it's getting quite interesting. Maybe that is the study design we want. And in fact, in this Cochrane review from two decades ago, quote, the reviewers conclude the more conservative estimate from the present analysis, in other words, it, when you look at active placebo control arms and antidepressants, the effect sizes are smaller, found that the differences between antidepressants and active placebos were small. This suggests that unblinding effects may inflate the efficacy of antidepressants in trials using inert placebos. So wow, okay, an inert placebo versus Prozac will help us clarify the safety profile, 
what's the safety difference of Prozac versus an inert placebo, but it might subvert the efficacy question because the efficacy question is better of Prozac versus active placebo. So actually randomized trials, maybe there's a logic for some trials to have three arms, inert placebo, active placebo, and the actual compound, particularly for short-term subjective endpoints like psychiatric conditions like depression and anxiety. Okay. Wow, this is a whirlwind tour. We have covered examples in oncology, cardiology, vaccine science, and psychiatry. We're understanding the nuances between truly inert compounds and active compounds, the pros and cons of each. It actually does vary. Now, let's do one more thing and step up our game and talk about procedural interventions, shall we? Procedural interventions. Oh boy, where to get started? Um... If you're having a heart attack, stents work really well. They improve survival a great deal. But if you merely get chest tightness when you shovel the driveway or go for a walk at a reproducible distance, you might not be having plaque rupture or myocardial infarction. You might just have a bit of plaque narrowing one or more of the arteries. And this is typically called chronic stable angina. It is a reproducible pain that comes on with exertion. It comes on at a certain amount of distance. It gets better with rest. And if you have chronic stable angina, the role of stenting, reopening that occluded artery is uncertain. This is typically a longer term plaque buildup that happens in chronic stable angina. For many years, people thought that if you put the stent there, you would lower the risk of subsequent heart attack or death. What we learned in 2008 in the Courage study, you did neither of those things. But people still believed, and in the Courage study, when you randomize these people with chronic stable angina and vascular disease to stent or no stent, even though you didn't live longer, you didn't have fewer heart attacks. We did learn that you had less symptoms and there was a symptomatic benefit that lasts between 18 and 20, 36 months and then it went away. Well, was that symptomatic benefit due to the procedure or was it due to the power of suggestion, the placebo effect of the procedure? Because the control arm of courage got pills. They didn't get a procedure. Well, that was the open question. And in the book, Ending Medical Reversal, Adam Sifu and I speculated that it was a placebo effect. Well, we didn't have to wait long. By the end of 20... 18, sorry, 2017, I think December, it actually pre-printed and then it came out in January. Um, Orbita came out. Very clever study, very clever. It is a sham control trial of stenting for chronic stable angina with a primary outcome of modified Bruce protocol treadmill testing. And to really understand the study, you gotta know a few more factoids and I'm trying to give you these as fast as possible. But the facts you gotta know are if you have chronic stable angina, you tend not to do as well on the modified Bruce protocol treadmill test. You tend not to go as long on that test. Um, if you had a stent placed for chronic stable angina, you would improve your treadmill testing typically by I think 90 seconds in the trial called ACME from two decades ago, three decades ago now. Um, this trial took people with single vessel disease, which was clever, because if you only have one vessel that's blocked, because there's three coronary vessels, you only have one that's blocked, take people with single vessel disease and chest tightness that comes on with exertion, as shown in the pictures, and you open up that single lesion, well, then they should feel better, shouldn't they? And they should go further on the treadmill test. And that's what the investigators took advantage of. They randomized patients to have the stent place or to wear headphones and have you poked in the groin and they monkey around down there and they don't actually place the stent so it's stent versus no stent, but in both cases, they tell you they did it and they put you back on the treadmill and stress you again and see how much you can do. And it turns out both groups, at, well, then the other thing to say is about power. If you give people like this an anti-anginal uh, drug, you should improve the time on the treadmill by 45 seconds. The minimally clinically important difference is thought to be in the 40, 45 second ballpark. 
and they power the study for a 30 second difference in this treadmill test, which is less than the MCID or the minimally clinically important difference. So ergo, the study is overpowered to detect the minimally important difference. And what they found was a null study that stenting did not improve treadmill stress test time. Uh, the absolute difference was 16 seconds. It was not significantly different. Some fools said that they were underpowered, but when you power yourself for something M less than the MCID, it's not an underpowered study, it's overpowered. And as Daryl Francis once said on Twitter, if you think my trial is underpowered, the only thing underpowered is your brain. All right, so putting all of this together, what's the takeaway lesson here? The takeaway lesson here is that people had chest pain with some blockage in the arteries. If you open that blockage, they actually feel better and they perform better on a treadmill. But is that due to the opening of the blockage or the placebo effect of having done the procedure and made them think that you were opening a blockage? And the answer is in Orbital, when you randomize people to doing it or not doing it, but telling them you did it, the effect is in both arms and there's no difference between the two arms, that's meaningful, ergo that it is entirely or mostly a placebo effect. So stenting something is a placebo procedure that improves symptoms, doesn't improve mortality, doesn't improve MI, and should be done away with for chronic state angina, where it continues to command $10 billion in market share or something of that nature. That's the beauty of Orbita. Now back to our points about placebo. If you want to know the efficacy of the stent, the control arm should be a sham procedure because that isolates the efficacy of the stent from the thought that you had it done. But what about the safety? You're still going to get a groin bleed in both arms. So the safety signal will be harder to detect for that you need an arm of medicine or where you don't do the procedure at all. So the correct control arm of a study, whether it's placebo controlled or sham controlled or active placebo controlled or, pa or immunologically inert placebo controlled, it depends on the specific clinical question. There is no perfect answer. It also depends on the power of the question that actually is true for the vaccines and it's true for Orbita. People said it was underpowered, but their brains were underpowered because it was powered for something less than what people thought was minimally important difference. So it should have found the minimally important difference. It didn't. Whatever it's finding is so trivial that you would never pursue it. 16 second difference is trash. Okay, this is a whirlwind tour. This is a lecture on placebos uh, in drugs and vaccine science. Uh, it's uh, not entirely clear. Uh, there is no perfect answer for every situation. It depends. You have to really understand the clinical context. If somebody wants to tell me that having vaccine studies with immunologically active agents obscures short-term safety, I would say, sure. If they say it also obscures the ability to detect things like autism, et cetera, some of these other concerns they have, I would say, uh, mm, the other problem with that is it doesn't have the power to do that, okay? It doesn't just have that power. So even if you gave salt water in the control arm, you wouldn't have the power to see those signals. Uh, if you want, really, in a randomized fashion to see that signal, uh, you would need a much larger study. What you do have is actually very good observational study that have precluded the possibility that those signals existed very, I think, above odds ratios, above certain magnitudes that are quite convincing to me. But that doesn't mean that the signal couldn't exist in an odds ratio below the magnitude that it could be captured by an observational study. So that's where I'm a little sympathetic to that argument. So I will solve it for you. I promise you. We are working on a paper. We will solve all of this for you. We will put a nice bow on it and we will give you a study design where everyone will be satisfied, the most ardent proponents of vaccines, the most ardent skeptic. And my solution is we need to push the FDA to this, a study design where everyone is satisfied. If we don't, I think they're gonna have more and more distrust in public health, which did a shit job on COVID and screwed all of that up, pretty much bungled the shit out of that. And so their distrust is well-deserved 
completely well-deserved. And the COVID vaccine, they bungled that too. So their distrust is very well-deserved. So I'm very sympathetic to that point of view. All right. That's the video on placebo effect. I hope it was uh, covered a lot on drug policy and placebos. If you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below, send it to a friend. Uh, if these videos do better and better on YouTube, then I will make more and more of them. But if they don't do that well, then I'll do all the other million things I've got to do. So it's up to you. You see what you want. All right. Until next time.